that aside, I want to start off tonight um, a new series. A new series that we're calling uh, Caution, Character Under Construction. And it's this idea that we're going to be focusing for the next three months on what it means to develop godly character, to become men and to become women who are more in step with who God wants us to be so that we can serve a broken and a hurting world more effectively. And I'm really excited about it. But in addition to just, uh, you know, learning to be a better Christian and to learn how to follow those precepts that God has called us to, these uh, principles, I promise you, are going to help you become people that are more successful, successful in life, more successful in school, more successful at work, in relationships, in your family. So listen up. Because I think that God has a message for us found in the Bible, and it's all about becoming more like Him. And so the idea of this sermon series really is going to be paralleled with the imagery of building a skyscraper. And the reason why that we chose this direction was because, if we're being honest, developing character is one of the most difficult things we can do. It's not just some simple little task. So when I started thinking about what it means to develop character and to become more like God, I started to realize this isn't like a birdhouse building class at Home Depot. That this is more like constructing some of the world's largest buildings. But I want to tell you tonight that it's worth it. That this work is, is worth the pain and the angri- anguish and the frustration of becoming a better person. Learning to, to listen to the voice of God, learning to become more like Him so that we can be more effective people. But for the record, I want you to realize that I do not have any delusions that in three months we're going to figure this out. Because it's a process. And frankly, the biggest difference that we have between building godly character and building a skyscraper is that eventually the skyscraper is finished. And we get to look at it, and we get to admire how amazing it is. And unfortunately, character is not really like that. Character is something that takes a long time to develop, and we never really get there. If you think you're there, you're not that far along. And so it's a little bit of that kind of encouragement, discouragement all at once. It's a lifelong aspiration that I really believe uh, requires constant course corrections. It, It requires constantly to go back to the blueprints and alter things and change things. And there's a lot of steps to building a skyscraper. Now, full disclosure, I've never built a skyscraper before, in case you were wondering. I don't actually know all that much. I just think that it's the biggest thing in the world, like man-made, other than maybe a dam. And they tend to not fall down that often, so they're probably well-built. And so I just thought it would be a good image. Um, And so before you can build a skyscraper, the very first thing you need to do is build a foundation. Now, I've been on house building projects. My family built a house when I was young, so I I recognize the importance of a foundation. But I came to realize that that building a foundation for a skyscraper is a little bit uh, more intense than I would have originally imagined. I thought it was kind of the same way where you dig down a certain amount of feet and you pour a concrete foundation and then you just build really tall on top of it. It's a really good thing I'm not an engineer. That's why God made me a pastor. Um, so if you're an engineer or an engineering student, um, just go easy on me. I'm doing the best I can. I'm not going to get very technical because I want to avoid that. But what I, what I found is upon more reading and, and, and kind of 
pushing into this subject is that there's really no typical foundation for a skyscraper. There's no real, like, open up skyscrapers for dummies, and there's just, like, this particular foundation, you build that, and you're good to go. It seems that every single massive tower built has an entire team of engineers and architects working just on the foundation alone. And so, for instance, I looked at two separate towers. The first is the Freedom Tower, built in New York City. Um, and this particular tower is built on bedrock. The Hudson River, the, the, the mouth of the Hudson River is very close to where this is, and there's bedrock very close to the surface. And so they actually didn't have to go down very deep. They put concrete pilings down onto the bedrock that they tested, and they poked, and they shook, and they made sure that it was going to stand. And then they built this incredibly huge, beautiful tower um, near the World Trade Centers, where they used to be. On the other hand, this building in Dubai, it's called the Burj Khalifa. I don't know if that's right. I'm trying. That building is actually built on sand, and like all sand. There's actually no bedrock anywhere near it. And so the way that they built it was teams of engineers designed this system that they called a rafting system. And deep down, 50 plus meters underground, they built these colossal concrete structures that essentially float in the sand. So as the sand shift and the earth sh shifts and the, the earth moves, this building kind of rafts, for lack of a better term, on the sand. And so the point is, is as I was kind of going through this, I thought it was interesting, but I also begun, began to realize that the way a foundation is built really depends on the ground that's being built on, and it depends on what's being built on top of it. And in the same way, I think our pursuit of godly character and developing godly character looks different than the person that we're sitting beside. The person that's right next to you, no matter how similar they are, maybe they're even your sibling, the way that they develop character is going to be different than you because there are things that are fundamentally different about them to you. And so I want us to realize tonight that a lot of this series is going to point us towards the direction of what it means to be more like Christ, to develop systems uh, that help us to become more that way. But I say this only because I want to encourage you that although your story and your journey might look a little bit different than someone else's, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. And so we need to build a proper foundation for that which we're building. And we're talking about building a character, becoming people that are more like God, so that we can succeed in this world in many different facets. And so tonight, we're going to focus on Romans 12, 1 and 2 for a little while, and, and what it takes to build this foundation. And so, if you want to pick up in Romans 12, it says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers in, and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns or to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now this, this portion of scripture contains a lot of truth, but, but what I want you to hear tonight is one of the things that it really does is it's the intersection between self-denial and self-discovery. And this is important for a number of reasons. The first is that this portion of Scripture, and, and for many of you that maybe grew up in church, or maybe, you know, you've been reading your Bible for a little while, this is a, a fairly common Scripture that we hear. And we hear it in the context of just be different than the world. Be more Christian. 
You know, when I was younger, I grew up in a very conservative, um, I, I don't want to say legalistic, but kind of. Like, it was, it was a little bit backwoods. And it was kind of like, if you want to be different than the culture, that means you don't listen to anything but Christian music, which for me meant DC Talk. That's Toby Mac now, for those of you who don't know. Um, you know, it, it meant that we didn't go to dances. We would do sock hops with our Christian youth group where girls and boys would never touch. You know, we would, we, would never, we would never talk about the things of the world. We avoided any talk about sexuality or issues with gender identity or anything like that because that was of the world and we were not of the world. We were very secluded. But what I've begun to notice is I, as I've become more aware of what Scripture is and where it's pointing us is that this Scripture has a lot more to do with the way that we see ourselves than the way that we see the world. And that's important because it, it, it creates this fine balance between sacrifice and fulfillment. And I'll get to fulfillment in a few minutes, but what I want to focus on right now is this idea of sacrifice. The sacrifice is the first thing we must realize in building this foundation of godly character. Because it's clear in Scripture that we are no longer our own. When you say yes to Christ, you say no to yourself. You say no to the desires of the flesh. You say no to the things that, that, that you believe are best for you because you subscribe now to the God of the universe who has a plan and a purpose for you. And we tend to have this disconnect between our bodies and ourselves. I, one of my favorite um, Bible school professors w said it this way. He said, if I stand in front of you and I say, look at me, there's a lot of reasonable thoughts going through your head. You know, he's wearing a green shirt. He's wearing a, a cool hat. He's dashingly handsome. All of those things that you just naturally think. But if I stand up here and I say, look at my body, you all got awkward real fast. I could feel the room tense up. We see, we, see we, we have this disconnect between who we are as people and our bodies. But I want you to hear tonight that Scripture really doesn't actually support that. Yes, we have eternal souls. And yes, there's some divide between our spiritual self and our physical self. But really and truly, Scripture's pretty, pretty pointed on the fact that our bodies are us. We are our bodies. And really, our bodies and ourselves don't belong to us anymore. Philippians 1.20, Paul says to the, to the church there, he says it this way. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's talking about his physical body. Then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says again, uh, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's a sense throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that what we do and how we act directly correlates with who we are as people. So that's important for us tonight. But sometimes I run into the issue that I look at my body and I think that, why would God want me? And maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you look at yourself and you think, you know, I'm too, I'm overweight or I'm underweight or my skin's blotchy or I'm achy or I'm nervous or I'm anxious or I'm unattractive or I have issues with committing to stuff or any number of things. I have a disease. Uh, I'm disabled. My body doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. I'm not happy with this body that I was given. And we have the sense that we believe and we start to believe the lies that our bodies are not good enough for God. 
We get plastered images all over our world of what we should look like. And we begin to focus on those things instead of focusing on the fact that God made us exactly the way that he wanted us to be. And the list could really go on and on. But we believe that our bodies are of no use to God, and therefore we are no use to God. But it's simply just not the case. If we believe this lie, then we're completely missing the point. The sacrifice of our bodies, this idea in Romans that Paul is saying, you know, sacrifice yourself, deny yourself, and bring yourself as a sacrifice to God. He's coming at it from this sense that our bodies are not a sacrifice for sin. We tend to, we tend to look at ourselves and kind of give ourselves too much credit. You see, God's not looking for us to be good enough that we pay for the penalty of our own sin. And whether or not you framed it that way, I think that fundamentally that's the lie that the, the, the enemy wants us to believe. He wants us to believe that we're not good enough to save ourselves. But that's not even on the table. Here tonight, that it's not your job to save yourself. Christ has already done that. And it's because of the work of Jesus Christ that we are able to stand in the presence of God, holy and complete, with bodies that are acceptable. Peter actually makes it clear when he, he writes in chapter 2, verse 5, and he says something very similar to what Paul's saying, but he takes it that one step further. He says, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now you need to understand, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were things that paid the penalty for the sin of the people. They were actions, and they were decisions, and they were laws that were created mostly by men, but some of which God gave them to help them deal with the world that they were living in. And so that idea of sacrifice was you brought something to the altar to give in exchange for all the ways that you had become unclean. But in the New Testament, we have the spotless lamb of Jesus Christ who came to pay the price for each one of us. And so Peter says it this way. He says, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. But if we do not have to bring a sacrifice anymore, what does he mean? He's talking about us as people. He's talking about our bodies. He's talking about our lives. But Peter goes on to say, through Jesus Christ. Now he clarifies what Paul leaves a little bit foggy in Romans. Peter says that bring acceptable spiritual sacrifices to God, but bring them through the lens of who Jesus Christ is. I think sometimes we look at the mountains in our life and we look at them through our unfiltered lens. And instead of putting on the lens of who Jesus Christ is and the truth of who he is, we look at the mountain and we think we have to scale it all by ourselves. But if we would just recognize that Jesus Christ wants to walk with us, Last week we talked about the fact that it's not just a place that we're headed. Jesus Christ is not just at the end of the path. He is the path. And so as we look at Scripture and as we begin to understand what, what Paul's trying to say in Romans through what Jesus did, that our bodies are absolutely acceptable to Christ. Now a lot of people, they get, they get stuck there. They get stuck in the sense that they've come 
and they've made their bodies accessible. They've said, okay, God, use me for what you want. But then they miss the second part of what Paul's trying to say, because Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect will. And the point here is to stress that your body counts. And we're going to come back to that. But Paul doesn't let us get away with anything. The reason why the body matters and the reason why what we do matters is because it carries out the things that we think. I think a lot of times, when I was younger, I, I used to believe the lie of, of anger. I believed that anger was, was what I considered to be a primary emotion. It was something that, when something happened to me, my response was anger. It was, it was kind of shown to me through my father. My father was a very angry man. Um, and so I just started to believe that that was, that was true. But what I began to realize over time was that Anger is actually a secondary emotion. Anger is, is a response to a primary emotion. You see, when something happens to you, you don't just get angry. You might think you do, but what actually happens is something happens to you, and you interpret it in a number of ways. Perhaps you're hurt. Somebody does something to you, and it hurts you. And so your response to that hurt is anger. You know, maybe something happens to you, and it scares you. And so your response to that fear is anger. Or maybe you find yourself in a situation in life that makes you sad and puts you into despair, and your response to despair and sadness is anger. And so I think that sometimes we get confused that our bodies and the things that we do are the primary action in what God wants for us. But what I want to challenge you with tonight is the idea that maybe it's less about our actions as a primary response, but our actions as a secondary response to what we think, what goes on in our mind, because our body can only act out what we think. And so I want you to understand tonight that renewing your mind is not a corporation, it's a cooperative. And I, I say it like this because a corporation really, in its essence and in its structure, puts one or two or maybe a group of people at the top, depending on how large the organization is, as the ones that make the decisions for all people. It's an entity that really, in law, is seen as a person. So an organization can be described essentially as a, as a person. Now, often I think that we get confused in, in the renewing of our minds and, and, be, and starting to look at how we become more like Christ. We begin to think that God is the CEO and that he is the one that is casting down vision and casting down our marching orders and casting down all the things that we're supposed to do, and we wait quietly and patiently to hear his voice. But what I want to challenge you with tonight is that maybe our faith is less about being like that and is more about being like a cooperative. A cooperative is um, defined like this. It's an autonomous association of persons— united voluntarily to meet their common economic, social, and cultural needs and aspirations through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. Now, I'm not advocating for any business model. I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking strictly spiritually here. Because my point is, is that if you're waiting for God, 
to renew your mind. If you're waiting diligently and you've created a posture of, of submission, maybe you're on your knees and you're sitting before God and you go, okay, God, I'm here, I'm ready for you. And that's all you do. You're missing out on something so much more. Because what God wants is not your simple obedience. He wants your participation in what he's doing. You need to be okay with the struggle. And the struggle is this. I think often preachers and teachers try really hard to simplify faith into really small parts that are tweetable. But what I, what I want you to know tonight and going forward that, that as a pastor, one of the most difficult things for me is to simplify scripture because it is not a simple thing. Faith is a very complex, difficult thing that's different for different people, and it's different at different stages of our life. And when we find ourselves in seasons of joy and exuberance, and things are coming together the way that we want them to, faith looks one way, but when we're in the depths of despair, and life is falling apart, and the ground beneath us is shaking, faith looks something entirely different. And so I want to encourage you tonight that wherever you are in your faith journey, just chill. Just chill out for a minute because God is doing something in your life. And he wants you to hear tonight that there is a struggle. And the struggle is, is that it's not just as simple as you would like it to be. Because hear me, when you said yes to Christ, when we say yes to Christ, he renews us completely and instantly. We are instantly justified. Our sins are paid for. We are made more like him than we ever have been. We are made pure as snow, white, whatever you want to call it. We are made to be more like him instantly. But it is the very first step in a very, very long journey, mostly uphill, to become more like him. And so I don't want you to ever get the sense that, that I'm preaching a message or that I'm reading the Bible in such a way that this is easy. This is not easy. This is not for the faint of heart. If you want to become a person that's passionate about Jesus and wants to follow him no matter where you go in your life and you sing songs and you find yourself in situations that you promise him things, then you better be able to do the work to back it up. Now hear me. That message is really hard for me to say because I am as guilty as any other person. I want it easy. I want to wake up and I want to be more like him. I want to wake up and I want to be a better preacher. I want to wake up. I want to be a better father. I want to wake up. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better worker. I want to be better looking. I want to be better in better shape. I want to earn more money. I want to drive a bigger, badder truck. But the problem is, is that we have to put in the work. And one of my all-time favorite pers people, persons, scriptural language. People in the world is my man, Dwayne Johnson. I mean, I'm just going to say it is, it is a man crush, 100%. I follow him everywhere. I would, I would have pictures in my house, but my wife says no. But Dwayne Johnson recently released a line of clothing and apparel and different stuff with um, Under Armour, and I keep finding myself there, and I, I want to buy all this stuff, but, like, I'm so just not as 
beefy as he is, and I just feel like I can't wear his clothing yet. But one of my favorite shirts that he has is, it, it says, Progress Through Pain. And if you watch Dwayne Johnson in any of his social media feeds, if you, if you follow him on anything, you'll see that, that all that guy does is work out. He works out every single day. He's huge. I mean, part of it, he's Samoan, so that's just natural. But part of it is, and most of it, is that he works out every day. He has like an 8,000 square foot gym that he travels with. Everywhere he goes, people just bring it along with him. And I remember I was reading an article in a, in a health magazine. I can't remember if it was Men's Health or where it was, but I was reading an article about Dwayne Johnson. He was just talking about how he really hates that people compare themselves to him because it's not fair. And I thought, okay, he's pretty cocky. But then he, he went on to explain. He said, you don't understand. He said, I work out between four and six hours every day. He said, I have a registered dietitian that is 100% mine. She, she works for me. She creates my diet specifically. Sarah's like, hey, I'm available. Like not like a, just available to work. Josiah, it's all good, man. You're pretty fit too. That was awkward. Sorry. But he said, you know, I have, I have a registered dietitian that crafts every meal, everything I eat perfectly, down to every macronutrient. And micro, I don't know if that's a thing, but if there's macro, there must be a micronutrient. So everything he does. And then he said, and I have a personal trainer. The Rock has a personal trainer. That blew my mind. But he has this whole team around him, dozens of people that are specifically there to make him look as close to perfect as possible. And they're doing a good job. But the reason why I say that is because we, we have this romantic sense, I think, of, of what it means to become more. We have this romantic sense of, of, of you know, what it takes to become fit, if, if we want to use that as a, as a definition. You know, we just, we just hit the gym a few times, we drink a few protein shakes, and eventually we're going to look like Dwayne Johnson. But unfortunately, we just know that's not true. We know that that's not true, and we, and we can look at certain specific things in our life, and we can know that to become financially successful, it's generally not easy. To become academically successful, it's generally not easy. To become a physical specimen and to, 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 to look like Dwayne Johnson, or, I mean, to compete at the Olympic level, to, to play in the NFL, to, to do any number, to become a world-class, renowned musician, to do any of these things requires a ton of work. Yet when it comes to our faith, we so often believe that, God, why am I just not better? It takes work. It takes a lifetime of struggle to become more like Christ. I mean, how many of you can relate? How many of you have, have struggled with something before? Maybe it's pornography. Uh, maybe it's eating too much or not eating enough. Maybe it's, you know, the words that come out of your mouth or, or maybe some of the things that you do behind closed doors that you don't want people to know about. Maybe it's some of the struggles you have with relationships or people uh, at work. Um, whatever it is, but how many of you can relate to the fact that sometimes you're doing really well and you feel like, I got this figured out. You know, I'm eating healthy, I've lost a few pounds, I'm well on my way. And then all of a sudden, you wake up in an Oreo coma, 
after Christmas and you're six pounds heavier and your pants don't fit anymore. I fluctuate like six to ten pounds a day because I'm so big. But, but the point is, is that we can so often find ourselves right exactly where we don't want to be even though we've been doing so well. But I want to encourage you tonight and discourage you at the same time by saying that we cannot expect lateral and uniform results in the department of growth. It happens in spurts, and it happens sometimes in ways that we wouldn't expect. But often there's long periods of times, time in the plateau or in the valley before we ever reach the mountaintop. And I, I think that that should encourage us more than it should d discourage us because it, it, it levels the playing field a little bit. Because we can begin to realize that, that maybe we're not broken. Maybe we're just like everybody else, and maybe we're just trying. And maybe if you just put in a little bit more effort, maybe if I just put in a little bit more effort, I would be a little bit more of the person that God wants me to become tomorrow. And so I want to encourage you that if you begin to partner with Christ and begin to allow him to guide and direct you, the process of pouring the foundation of a godly character can begin. And so what actually does the renewing of our mind look like? I think it's the partnership of our minds and our bodies when we begin to work together. And I believe that we find this in Philippians 4, verse 8 where Paul is saying to another church, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, normally we stop there. We stop at verse 8, and we hit our knees, and we pray, God, help me to just think better. God, help me to just, to just get rid of those bad thoughts. Help me to think about things that are admirable and pure and holy. Help me to think about things that are right and lovely. And we end there, and then one of two things happen. Either we start thinking that way, and nothing else in our life changes, and we convince ourselves that somehow we're beginning to become more like Him, or we just continue to fail and continue to fail and continue to fail because thinking alone is not enough. And it's not until we complete this little bit of scripture with verse 9 where Paul says this, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, this is the key. Put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And so tonight I want to encourage you if you're standing on the precipice of your life and you're waiting for God to move, and you're waiting for God to show up and to make clear the path that he has for you, I want you to stop doing that for just a second because I want you to just do something. I think sometimes we get so worried. We get so, and I mean, I've been there. I've been at the feet of God just praying and praying and hoping and saying, God, please reveal your plan to me. Give me clarity. Help me to see exactly what you want me to do, Father, and I will climb every mountain. God, if you lay out the plan for me and you show me exactly the direction from A to B, I'm your man. 
And God, instead of doing that, he just whispers to me over and over again, just do something. And I think that's what Paul's trying to say here. He's trying to say, if you want to renew your mind, church, if you want to become people that are more like him, then just do something. It's not whatever in the sense of all inclusivity. It's not think of all things that are lovely and all things that are holy and all things that are right. Just whatever. Whatever you find, whatever you think of that's lovely, whatever you think of that's more like him, just think about those things. But then Paul says one thing further. He says, then just do it. Just do it. Put it into practice. Take that little bit. You don't have to become Mother Teresa overnight. Just do that one little thing. Treat that person next to you with a little bit more dignity. Look at the, the person in your life that's frustrating and look at them and see that they are made in the image of God just like you are. Begin to look at yourself through the lens that you are not a failure. That the way that your body has been put together, the way that your mind works is not a failure. Just do something. Something is better than nothing. But way too often we choose nothing because we get consumed with everything. And the final point I want to make tonight is that we're meant to be worshipful before we're merciful. I think that another lie that we get trapped in often when we look at what it means to have godly character is that we forget who we're doing it for. You see, mercy alone isn't good enough. And I was reflecting on this and thinking about the church. And I don't mean the church as in Elam, the building, or, or whatever church you call home. I mean the church as, as men and women who follow Christ, the people that make up the church. And I was thinking about it, and I thought, what makes the church such a powerful force in our world? I mean, it's undeniable to say that the Bible, Scripture, and church, the, the history of the church has undeniably shaped the entirety of humankind and altered the course of our entire earth because of one man named Jesus and because of 12 men and women that followed who came to know him and chose that he gave us life. And so I begin to think, what was it that made us such a powerful force? And I want to, I want to suggest that I don't think it's just all the good things we've done. And don't get me wrong, I think it's a fairly strong argument to say that there have been more amazing things come out of church than anywhere else in society. There is more money given to help people in need. There are more people out there trying actively to become better people, to help people, to show them that there is more than this measly, earthly existence. But I want to challenge you tonight with this idea that the thing that makes the church such a powerful force is not what we do, it's who we worship. You see, we can do any number of good things in our own name, but they only do so much. If you want to be a person that changes the world, you better not believe that you can do it by yourself. I mean, a lot of us grew up with this lie that we could become anything we wanted. I could never be a jet pilot, like a fighter jet pilot. I mean, I grew up watching Top Gun. We had a dog named Maverick 
His name, that's a different story for another time. I thought his name was Maverick because of Top Gun. My wife named him Maverick because of Mel Gibson in the movie Maverick. If you don't know what it is, look it up. But like Top Gun was such an important movie to me, but I believed this lie growing up that I was going to be a pilot. And I realized that I actually didn't want to be a fighter pilot because I didn't want to die. I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. And I remember I graduated high school. I was super pumped. I drove directly to Kelowna, BC, because I was living in southern BC at the time. And I went to helicopter training school. And I walked in. I said, hey, sir, I'm here to apply. And he looked at me. You're too big. I said, what? He said, how much do you weigh? I was like a lean 260. I'm even the leader of 305 right now. <laughs> and, and he looked at me and he said, listen, he said, the, the helicopter we use for training can only carry 400 pounds. And he said, I'm more than 140. He was a big boy too. And so just like that, my dreams were dashed. And I thought, mom, you're such a liar. I can't be anything I want. You know, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but like, I, I think that we've believed this lie for so long in our life that we can be whatever we want to be. But here tonight, that God doesn't want you to be whatever you want to be. God wants you to be exactly the person that he planned for. He wants you to, to flourish where you're at. Yeah, someday you might stand in front of 10,000 people. Or maybe someday you might cure a disease that, that I've never even heard of. You know, maybe one day you'll build a skyscraper for real. Maybe one day you'll become a mom or a dad and fulfill the dream of that. But right now, you might not be there. But the first step is starting to believe and understand that God has something planned for you. And your first step is just to trust in Him. And to remember that the reason why we are such a powerful force as the church is not because of what we do. Let me word it another way. The best version of you possible pales in comparison to the one that we worship. And so tonight, hear that truth, that before mercy flows, and Paul says it in Romans 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Why? Because this is your spiritual act of worship. Before we do anything, we worship. And so tonight, I just want to leave you with four simple steps to begin to pour the foundation of what a godly character looks like. The first, believe that we're not our own. You know, if you met an artist and you saw their work, you, you probably wouldn't be super harsh about it to their face, unless they're your sister. <laughs> right? But art is so subjective, and we give people the freedom to see it the way that they want to see it. It's below money, it's above money, it's something entirely different. And the Bible is very clear about the fact that you were crafted by the potter's, potter's hands. You were, you were made. You were created. And so stop looking at the work of the artist and saying that it's not good. Start realizing that, that who I am is not my own. 
but it's actually, it's actually all about him. So the first step is, is to believe that we are not our own, but we belong to God. The second is partner with Christ. Don't wait. Don't wait for God to move. Don't wait for him to tell you exactly what to do. Partner with him. Begin to seek what he wants for you. And the way that you do that is by doing something. Don't be stymied by everything and choose to do nothing. Just do something. And finally, the last one is be worshipful. Become a person that before you make big decisions, before you respond to situations, be the type of person that enters into worship first. And that doesn't mean songs. So it, can, it can mean. But that means a posture of your heart that you come before God and you say, okay, God, I, I want to see what you're doing here. I want to know you. Become a person who is worshipful. And I think that if we begin to employ these four things, and as we begin to become sensitive to, to the reality that we are building a foundation upon which God is going to develop characters, characteristics rather, that make us look more like him. If we begin to do that, I think that the skyscraper is going to be a whole lot taller and a whole lot more amazing. Let's pray together.